Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I'm trying to free your mind, Neo. But I can only show you the door. You're the one that has to walk through it. Welcome back to the Origins Podcast, everyone. This is your host, Paul, and this is episode 82. It's been a couple of weeks since the last show, but that's because I've been on holidays, as I mentioned in episode 81, or if you visited the website recently. And coming back home from my holiday was nice, except our house was full of dust. The other week we had a big dust storm that blew in from central Australia and affected Sydney and Brisbane and quite a bit of the Australian eastern seaboard. So, as I'm the house cleaner because I don't work full time most of the time, guess whose job it was to clean all the dust out. Not quite finished yet, it'll probably take a little bit longer to get it all through. But I thought I'd sit down and do the podcast. I'm a bit sick of cleaning. So here we go. Episode 82 of the Origins Podcast. Our first story today comes from the blogs.discovermagazine.com forward slash 80 beats website. To save the planet from global warming, turn the Sahara green. And I thought this article was quite appropriate in light of all the dust problems we've been having here in Eastern Australia. A team of researchers has come up with a simple plan to halt global warming. All we need to do is to turn both the Sahara and the Australian outback into vast, shady forests. While that might sound so ambitious as to be absurd, the climate scientists say the project would be no more expensive or technologically challenging than some of the other geoengineering schemes that are currently under discussion. And researcher Leonard Ornstein says it would certainly get results. Ornstein says that if most of the Sahara and Australian outback were planted with fast-growing trees like eucalyptus, the forests could draw down about 8 billion tonnes of carbon a year, nearly as much as people emit from burning fossil fuels and forests a day. As the forests matured, 
they could continue taking up this much carbon for decades. The study, published in the journal Climatic Change, proposes huge desalination plants on the North African and Australian coastlines to convert seawater to freshwater and a system of aqueducts and pumps to move the water inland. The young forests would be nourished with drip irrigation to prevent water loss through evaporation and the sandy wastelands would change into endless groves of heat-tolerant tropical trees like eucalyptus. All that water engineering would come at a steep price, about $2 trillion per year, but the researchers say that cost isn't much more than the projected cost of capturing all the carbon dioxide emissions from the world's power plants and burying them deep underground. They also note that carbon capture and storage technology is still untested on the commercial scale, while everyone knows about forests and how they work as carbon sponges. But like other proposed geoengineering schemes, the researchers note that planting these forests might have side effects. The increased moisture could trigger plagues of locusts in Africa, just as the odd wet year does now. It could also dampen existing soils, stopping iron-rich dust from blowing off the Sahara and into the Atlantic Ocean, where it nourishes sea life, the study points out. The idea of irrigating the centre of Australia to promote plant growth is nothing new. It actually has been proposed a number of times in the past. The problem with a scheme like this in Australia is that much of the centre of Australia was under the ocean for many, many thousands of years. The salt from this ocean is still there. And what we're finding is that as we irrigate some of these areas to grow crops, the water table rises from this irrigation. As it rises, it brings the salt to the surface, the salt makes the soil unsuitable for crop growing, and the whole area becomes unproductive. So if they did do something like this, they would have to be very careful how they watered, how much water they used to stop the salt coming to the surface and making the whole scheme a huge, expensive failure. And as our last story mentioned Australia in its content, I thought, why not do an Australian-themed story as the second one? Australia was a hothouse for killer lizards by Sarah Clark, and this came from the www.abc.net.au website. A team of scientists has overturned the theory that the world's largest lizard evolved on the islands of Indonesia. Weighing around 70 kilograms and growing up to 3 metres long, 
The Komodo dragon is regarded as the world's largest lizard. But the discovery of an array of fossilised bones at three different sites across Queensland has triggered a new theory, that Australia was a hub for lizard evolution. The research which involved scientists from Malaysia, Indonesia and Australia, and led by Dr Scott Hocknell of the Queensland Museum, is published today on the Science Journal website, PLOS One. Once reputed to be the origin of the Chinese dragon myth, the Komodo dragon is now in such small numbers it is considered a vulnerable species. The remaining 5,000 or so live on a handful of isolated islands in eastern Indonesia, which many scientists always believed was their birthplace. Dr Hocknell says the fossilised bones discovered at three different sites across Queensland are identical to the Komodo dragon. It was a particular set of fossils that were found at Mount Etna in Queensland that were dated around 300,000 years old that really sparked my interest because I was the person that helped find the material, she said. I was figuring out what on earth they were and my assumption was that it was just going to be another species of lizard that lived in Australia and still does. Say, for example, a lace monitor or something, but it was much, much bigger. The fossils that were found in Queensland in Eastern Australia show that the Komodo dragon had its origins here in Australia about four million years ago and persisted in Australia until at least 300,000 years ago and perhaps even younger than that. What it shows is that again Australia is the home to some very strange and very peculiar animals that now no longer live on our continent and have found a home elsewhere. The researchers believe the Komodo dragon dispersed westward, reaching the island of Flores around 900,000 years ago. But the size of the fossils found in Australia suggest it was always a large, land-based lizard and it spent four million years here before it became extinct. The question is, what caused its extinction? The 300,000-year record is the youngest record that we have, Dr Hocknell said. We can assume that the Komodo dragon may have kicked along in Australia right up until human arrival. There's no reason to assume not. Perhaps humans were the cause of their extinction, perhaps it was climate change, perhaps a combination of both. What the record on Flores shows in Indonesia is that the Komodo dragon was there for over a million years, kicking along quite nicely. Big faunal changes, volcanic eruptions, all these amazing things happening on that island and yet the Komodo dragon existed without any major issues. According to Dr Hocknell, that changed about 2,000 years ago when its range retracted to the coastlines where it is now found. The only thing you can link to that is habitat destruction and persecution by modern humans, he said. The Komodo dragon is well known as a man-eater and would have no doubt put up a good fight against modern man. So why did it survive and thrive on the tiny isolated Indonesian island of Flores? Paleontologist Professor Tim Flannery of Macquarie University in Sydney has a theory. It became extinct, we think, about 50,000 years ago, about the time that humans arrived in Australia. 
and of course it disappeared from every other island in Indonesia except Flores, he said. The one interesting thing about Flores is that it is the home of the Hobbit. So the Hobbit was there for about two million years and maybe Hobbit hunting was a bit like preschool for the Komodo dragon. They learnt how to deal with human-like hunters. Whereas in Australia and the rest of the islands, the first thing that turned up was fully modern humans, and they seem not to have been able to cope with that. And whilst we're talking about strange animals from the past that lived in the Southern Hemisphere, from the www.fizorg.com, from the beautiful islands of New Zealand, an extinct eagle may have eaten humans. Sophisticated computer scans of fossils have helped solve a mystery over the nature of a giant ancient raptor known as the Haast's eagle, which became extinct about 500 years ago, researchers said on Friday. The researchers say they have determined that the eagle, which lived in the mountains of New Zealand and weighed about 40 pounds or 18 kilograms, was a predator and not a mere scavenger as many thought. Much larger than modern eagles, Haast's eagle would have swooped to prey on flightless birds and possibly even the rare unlucky human. Ken Ashwell of the University of New South Wales in Australia and Paul Schofield of the Canterbury Museum in New Zealand wrote their conclusions in the peer-reviewed journal of vertebrate paleontology. Using CAT scans, the researchers scanned several skulls, a pelvis and a beak, in an effort to reconstruct the size of the bird's brain, eyes, ears and spinal cord. They compared their data on the Haast's eagle to characteristics of modern predator birds and scavenger birds to determine that the bird was a fearsome predator that ate the flightless mower birds and even humans. The researchers also determined the eagle quickly evolved from a much smaller ancestor, with the body growing much more quickly than the brain. They believed its body grew 10 times bigger during the early to middle Pleistocene period, 700,000 to 1.8 million years ago. This work is a great example of how rapidly evolving medical techniques and equipment can be used to solve ancient medical mysteries, Ashwell said. Because fossils are so fragile, and most of the species were never seen by humans, CAT scans allow researchers to closely examine body parts of the long extinct animals to learn about their behaviour, Schofield said. The fossils are very valuable, and you can't just cut into the skull to look at the brain, he said. 
So by using non-destructive techniques, you can get a much better idea of the neurobiology of these animals. Scientists believe that the Haast's eagle became extinct about 500 years ago, most likely due to habitat destruction and the extinction of its prey species at the hands of the early Polynesian settlers. Before the humans colonised New Zealand about 750 years ago, the largest inhabitants were birds like the Haast's eagle and the moa. Schofield said the findings are similar to what he found in Maori folktales. The science support Maori mythology of the legendary Puakai, a huge bird that could swoop down on people in the mountains and was capable of killing a small child, he said. New Zealand paleontologist Trevor Worthy said the study did a good job of proving the eagle was a killer. They provide a convincing case that the body of this eagle has rapidly enlarged, presumably adapting to the very much larger prey it had access to in New Zealand, but that the brain size had lagged behind this increase, he said in an email interview. Convincing data shows beyond doubt that this bird was an active predator, no mere scavenger. It is a nice use of modern technology and the same old bones as yesteryear to advance knowledge. Jamie R. Wood, a researcher from New Zealand who has done extensive research on the moa, said the analysis strengthens the case that the eagle evolved quickly from a much smaller ancestor, in what must be one of the most dramatic examples anywhere of how rapidly evolution can occur on islands. While scouring my sources on the internet and elsewhere, looking for stories for the Origins podcast, I quite often come across articles on alternative energy sources, energy from just about anywhere. But when I came across this one from the www.msnbc.msn.com website, I just had to include it in the podcast because it was slightly different. An article by Eric Bland. Forget gas, batteries... P is the new power source. Scientists can create cheap hydrogen from urine for use in fuel cells. Urine-powered cars, homes and personal electronic devices could be available in six months with new technology developed by scientists from Ohio University. Using a nickel-based electrode, the scientists can create large amounts of cheap hydrogen from urine that could be burned or used in fuel cells. One cow can provide enough energy to supply hot water for 19 houses, said Geraldine Bott, a professor at Ohio University, developing the technology. Soldiers in the field could carry their own fuel. P-Power is based on hydrogen, 
the most common element in the universe, but one that has resisted efforts to produce, store, transport and use economically. Storing pure hydrogen gas requires high pressure and low temperature. New nanomaterials with high surface areas can absorb hydrogen but have yet to be produced on a commercial scale. Chemically binding hydrogen to other elements like oxygen to create water makes it easier to store and transport, but releasing the hydrogen when it's needed usually requires financially prohibitive amounts of electricity. By attaching hydrogen to another element, nitrogen, Bott and her colleagues realised that they can store hydrogen without the exotic environmental materials and then release it with less electricity, 0.037 volts instead of the 1.23 volts needed for water. One molecule of urea, a major component of urine, contains four atoms of hydrogen bonded to two atoms of nitrogen. Stick a special nickel electrode into a pool of urine, apply an electrical current, and hydrogen gas is released. Bott's current prototype measures 3 by 3 by 1 inch and can produce up to 500 milliwatts of power. However, Bott and her colleagues are actively trying to commercialise several larger versions of the technology. A fuel cell urine-powered vehicle could theoretically travel 90 miles per gallon. A refrigerator-sized unit could produce one kilowatt of energy for about $5,000, although this price is a rough estimate, says Bott. The waste products from, say, a chicken farm could be used to produce the energy needed to run the farm, said John Stickney, a chemist and professor at the University of Georgia. For livestock farmers who are required by law to pool their animals' waste, large-scale prototypes could turn that urine into power within six months. Smaller versions likely won't be available till after that, so the average consumer probably shouldn't start saving their pee just yet. It's not a solution for all our cars, said Stickney, but it is the kind of process which will find many applications and will make for a greener world. And taking this story to a logical conclusion, does that mean that if you go out to a party and have a bit of a rough night on the alcohol, and if you save your pee, that could be converted into a high-octane fuel and therefore be worth more than standard pee and therefore recycle what you've taken in the night before? Hmm, let me know what you think. Those of you that have been listening to the podcast for some time know that every now and then I do a segment called The Origin of Words. Anyway, whilst digging around on the internet the other day, I found a nice website called The Word Detective. This site has nice, detailed descriptions of the origins of words, and it's quite well written. So for now and into the future, The Origin of Words from The Word Detective website. And if you're really a switched-on listener, you'll realise that this article has something to do with the previous one. Lou. The origin of the word Lou. And the subtitle is Not Even Close. Dear Word Detective, 
The Perfect Summer by Juliet Nicholson on page 80 reads, Lady Louisa Anson, an intimidating guest at a vice-regal lodge in Victorian Ireland, was so rude to the Viceroy's children, they stole the name card from her bedroom door and slid it into the holder on the door of the water closet. The lady was not amused when the maid persistently misdelivered her morning tea. The story spread, and from then on, people needing a discreet reason to excuse themselves would announce that they were off to visit Lady Lou, or as it simply became known, the Lou. Could this be true? Roger Baker. Absolutely not. That story is nonsense. I must say, however, that it is curiously attractive because it exhibits several of the key elements of a successful urban legend. There's the presence of the aristocracy always a winner. More importantly, the snobby rich person gets her comeuppance at the hands of the downtrodden, albeit also rich children, she has wronged. And the whole tale centres on the socially taboo subject of toilets. No wonder the author was suckered by that story. That looks like an interesting book, by the way. It's a portrait of the summer of 1911, three years before the start of World War I, focusing on the upper-crust British society and written by the granddaughter of Vita Sackville-West and Harold Nicholson. But did guests at a Viceroy's mansion really have their rooms marked by little name cards on the door? How tacky. I wonder if they also wore those, Hi, my name is, things at dinner. Lou is, of course, slang primarily British, for the toilet, restroom or bathroom. The origin of Lou has been hotly and quite often creatively debated since the word first appeared. One popular theory suggests that servants in the 17th and 18th century emptying chamber pots out of the window warned passers-by in the street below with the shout Gardez-le, French for watch out for the water, which was pronounced Gardez-le, in Britain and later shortened to Lou. This story, however, like many of the more colourful origins proposed, runs aground on the fact that Lou first appeared in print relatively recently, in 1922, in the form of a joke in Ulysses by James Joyce. Oh yes, mon Lou, how much cost? Waterloo, water closet. The 1922 vintage of Lou also casts doubt on Nicholson's account since it is set no later than 1911. There are two theories, however, that should be considered more likely. The French euphemism Lou, pronounced Lou from Lou d'Essence, meaning places of comfort or comfort stations, might well have been picked up by British soldiers in France during World War I. The period between the war and the first appearance of Lou in print would be about right for armed services slang to percolate into general usage. On the other hand, James Joyce may in that quote from Ulysses have been on to the actual origin of Lou. It may simply be a joke based on the use of Waterloo, as in the Battle of Waterloo, as a punning take on Water Closet. Such a linkage would make Lou similar to the British rhyming slang, where a nonsense phrase rhyming with the real word plates of meat for feet, for example, is abbreviated and obscured still further by dropping the bit that actually rhymes, leaving us with the mysterious plates as slang for feet. Water closet thus, in this theory, became Waterloo, and then just Lou.
The following story was suggested by one of our listeners, Jeff from Portland in Oregon. It's entitled, When They Blow Up a Whale, They Really Blow It Up. And it's from the www.theexplodingwhale.com website. And it's dated Friday, November 13, 1970. Florence. It was a beautiful day to blow up a whale. The sun was shining and there was a gentle breeze on the beach south of the Suislaw River Thursday as State Highway Division workers placed 20 50-pound cases of explosives under the 45-foot whale which washed up on the beach Monday. Coast residents, as well as many from Eugene, walked over the sand dunes to the beach to see the show. Cameras dangled from nearly everyone. The crowd included a sprinkling of television cameramen. As workers excavated the holes for the dynamite, shutterbugs took pictures of each other in front of the beached whale, lying on its side, displaying a gaping red and white expanse of flesh and bone where someone had sawed away its lower jaw. Everyone stayed upwind. One woman onlooker suggested the highway division should wait until Monday to blow up the whale. That way, she reasoned, the people who come to the beach for the weekend could have an opportunity to see it. For safety reasons, George Thornton, Assistant District Highway Engineer, ordered everyone back as the demolition experts from his Eugene office placed the charges. He said his plan was to place the explosives so the force of the blast would throw most of the pieces of the whale towards the ocean. Then, when the tide washed it back in, he said, highway crews would haul it away or bury what the seagulls didn't eat. It took an hour and 45 minutes to place the dynamite. As final preparations were made, a green-helmeted sheriff's deputy moved the ranks of onlookers back. The dunes a quarter of a mile south of the whale were dotted with spectators, most of them watching through binoculars or telescopic camera lenses. Thornton gave the signal to push the plunger. The beach erupted into a 100-foot-high column of sand and whale. Chunks of the animal flew in every direction and spectators began to scream and run for cover when they glimpsed the large pieces soaring directly overhead. No one was hit, but a piece about three foot long caved in the top of a late-model car in a South Jetty Road parking lot. Walter Umenhofer, a Springfield businessman, stood in the middle of a crowd around his damaged car and ruefully watched a hard-hatted highway worker remove the piece of blubber with a shovel. My insurance company's never going to believe this, he said. After the large pieces had fallen, it began to rain small particles of foul-smelling blubber. Many in the crowd ran for their cars and drove away, but they wouldn't be rid of the nauseating odour until they bathed and washed their clothes and cars. Down on the beach, Thornton inspected the blast area, strewn with pieces of whale and sprinkled with blubber powder. Where the whale had been, there was a large hole. The only recognisable part of the whale was its tail, a few feet from the blast area. The smell had improved but not much. It went just exactly right, Thornton said, except the blast funneled a hole in the sand under the whale. As a result, he said, part of the whale was thrown away from the ocean toward the parking lot. 
He added, the result of the blast justified the precautions taken in moving the crowd so far away. As Thornton walked away, a bulldozer began moving in to bury some of the larger chunks. A small boy ran down the beach ahead of his father. Look, the boy cried, a piece of the whale. A long-haired young man wearing an army field jacket and carrying a movie camera stood watching. Unbelievable, he muttered. So incredibly surrealistic. Now, we all know that grasshoppers are supposed to be yellowish or greenish or brownish so that they can blend in with their environment and hide from their predators. At least that's what we were taught in school. Well, from the telegraph.co.uk website, an article by Richard Seville. An 11-year-old boy finds a pink grasshopper. A rare pink grasshopper has been found by a schoolboy taking part in a nature trail. And if you go to the show notes at www.origins.info and click on the link to episode 82 and then the link to this article, you can have a look at the pink grasshopper. The insect was found by 11-year-old Daniel Tate, who thought it was a flower until he saw it jump and then realised it was a grasshopper. The insect was later identified by wildlife officers as an adult female common green grasshopper who had been born pink. Daniel, who attended the wildlife event at Seton Marshes near Sidmouth, Devon, with his great-grandfather said, I was looking for grasshoppers when I saw something pink. I thought it was a flower, but I saw it moving so I tried to catch it. It jumped, and then I knew it was a grasshopper. He added, I was really excited to hear that no one else had found a pink grasshopper at that place before. Fraser Rush Nature Reserve's officer for East Devon District Council said, There are millions of common green grasshoppers, but I have never seen a pink one. The female comes in a variety of colours, normally different shades of green and brown. Occasionally it tends towards purple, but this is a leap beyond that to pink. He added, Pink grasshoppers are unusual, but not unheard of. However, the intensity of the pink in this case makes it highly unusual. Mr. Rush said the pink grasshopper was a natural variety of the species, albeit a rare one. It has not been caused by any mutation or any environmental effects. He added, there is a chance it will have bred already and will pass on its pink gene. After being studied, the grasshopper was released back into the reserve.
And while we're talking about the strange and weird, here's an article from the blogs.laweekly.com website. Bury your rodent with dignity. Coffin mousetrap. And if you go to the show notes at www.origins.info and click on the link to this article in episode 82, you'll see some photos of this cardboard mousetrap, which is in the shape of a coffin. The base of the coffin is a conventional mousetrap, and when the rodent is caught, you put the rest of the mousetrap over the top, and it makes a cardboard coffin. And the caption that goes with it is, Give the mouse a proper funeral. Mousetrap by packaging designer Sarah Derry. Best part about it is the inscription on the lid. Oh, mon dieu. And coming up in the second part of the podcast today, space colonisation, future or fantasy. And the cut price $6 million man, scientists say they can recreate him for just £150,000. Tick saliva may cure skin, liver and pancreas cancer. And from Southeast Asia, dinosaur eggs are found in India. And... Algae-based non-metallic batteries could revolutionise energy storage industry. Those stories coming up in part two of the Origins podcast, episode 82. From the www.dailygalaxy.com Space colonisation, future or fantasy? Humans have always been fascinated by the idea of space travel. Some even believe that colonising new planets or moons is our best hope for the future. The popular idea is that we'll eventually need some fresh, unexploited new worlds to inhabit. In a recent Galaxy post, we wrote that Stephen Hawking, world-celebrated expert on the cosmological theories of gravity and black holes, who holds Isaac Newton's Lucasian chair at Cambridge University, believes that travelling into space is the only way humans will be able to survive in the long term. Life on Earth, Hawking has said, is at the ever-increasing risk of being wiped out by a disaster, such as sudden global warming, nuclear war, a genetically engineered virus or other dangers. I think the human race has no future if it doesn't go into space. Another of his famous quotes reiterates his position that we need to get off the planet relatively soon. I don't think the human race will survive the next 1,000 years unless we spread into space. The problems with Hawking's solution is that while it may save a seed of human life, a few lucky specimens, it won't save Earth's inhabitants. The majority of Earthlings would surely be left behind on a planet increasingly unfit for life. In a futuristic mode similar to Hawking, both Stephen Dick, chief NASA historian, and Carnegie Mellon robotics pundit Hans Moravec believe that human biological evolution is but a passing phase. The future of mankind 
will be as vastly evolved sentient machines capable of self-replicating and exploring the farthest reaches of the universe, programmed with instructions on how to recreate Earth life and humans to target stars. Dick believes that if there is a flaw in the logic of the Fermi paradox, and extraterrestrials are a natural outcome of cosmic evolution, then cultural evolution may have resulted in a post-biological universe in which machines are the predominant intelligence. Renowned science fiction writer Charles Stross argued last week in his High Frontier Redux blog that space colonization is not in our future, not because it's impossible, but because to do so effectively you need either outrageous amounts of cheap energy, highly efficient robot probes, or a magic wand. I'm going to take it as read that the idea of space colonization isn't unfamiliar. Stross opens his post. Domed cities on Mars, orbiting cylindrical space habitats a la J.D. Bernal or Jared K. O'Neill, that sort of thing. Generation ships that take hundreds of years to ferry colonists out to other star systems where, as we are now discovering, there are profusions of planets to explore. The obstacles facing us are immense distance and time. The scale factor involved in space travel is strongly counterintuitive. Stross adds that planets that are already habitables insofar as they orbit inside the habitable zone of their star possess free oxygen in their atmosphere and have a mass, surface gravity and escape velocity that are not too forbidding are likely to be somewhat rarer. And if there is free oxygen in the atmosphere on a planet, that implies something else. The presence of pre-existing photosynthetic life, a carbon cycle, and a bunch of other stuff that could well unleash a big can of whoop-ass on an unprimed human immune system. Stross sums up by saying that while I won't rule out the possibility of such seemingly magical technology appearing at some time in the future, in the absence of technology indistinguishable from magic that interstellar travel for human beings, even in the comfort of our own solar system, is near as damn it, a non-starter.
From the www.dailymail.co website, the cut price, $6 million man, scientists say they can recreate him for just £150,000. And it's by Sean Poulter. 35 years ago, TV writers thought it would cost $6 million to create a bionic man. That's around £3.7 million. However, these days, scientists claim they could knock a real one together for about £150,000. They say products exist that allow those who have lost their legs to walk, give limited vision to those who are blind, and to create superhuman strength. In The Six Million Dollar Man, astronaut Steve Austin, played by Lee Majors, was left horribly injured after his craft crashed. The opening sequence of the 1970s TV series featured an off-camera voice intoning, Gentlemen, we can rebuild him. We have the technology. Austin was given a bionic arm and legs and an artificial zoom lens eye. British scientists at the Institution of Engineers say they have identified developments that mean it is possible to create a real version of this Superman. The institution's engineering and technology magazine has brought together these innovations to show how they could work. Magazine editor Dickon Ross said, Anybody who grew up with the six million dollar man is probably surprised that we're not already running at super speeds and jumping over buildings. But behind the scenes, there are some really exciting developments, many by British companies, that are being made and at costs that are bringing the technology from science fiction to science fact. There is the Ossa Power Knee, made by a company in Iceland, which is the world's first powered bionic artificial body part for above-knee amputees. It automatically synchronises its motion with that of the second leg. Touch Bionics has created the eye limb, which is a powered hand. The articulated fingers are controlled by wires which receive muscle signals from the arm. Berkeley Bionics of the UK have developed an exoskeleton comprised of two powered anthropomorphic legs, a small onboard computer and a backpack-like frame for bearing weights, which no ordinary person could carry for long. Staff at Moorfields Eye Hospital in London have enhanced the sight of members of the Special Forces, giving them a vital advantage on the battlefield, while tests are being carried out on technology to bring limited vision to those who have lost their sight. This could lead to developments to enhance ordinary vision. And if you go to the show notes and click on the link to this article in episode 82, they have some photographs and diagrams showing the things that have been talked about. And coming up now is an interesting article from the www.treehugger.com by Michael Graham Richard. Tick saliva may cure skin, liver and pancreatic cancer. It goes to show that you never know where science is going to make its next discovery. Brazilian researchers were studying the repulsive, to me anyway, maybe some of you think they're cuddly, abeloma cajunensis tick and discovered an interesting protein in its spit. 
After some testing on rats with tumours, it looks like tick saliva might hold the key to cure cancers of the skin, liver and pancreas. According to AFP, the Factor X protein in the tick spit shares some characteristics with a common anticoagulant called TFPI, tissue factor pathway inhibitor, specifically a Knutz type inhibitor which also has been shown to interfere with cell growth. Since a cancer is basically a group of cells that are growing out of control, controlling this growth is very important. So the protein was tested on cultures of cancerous cells and exceeded all expectation. It didn't kill normal cells, just those with cancer. The next step was testing on rats. If I treat every day for 14 days an animal's tumour, a small tumour, this tumour doesn't develop. It even regresses. The tumour mass shrinks. If I treat for 42 days, you totally eliminate the tumour the scientists said. But of course, these results are still in phase one. The scientists might yet hit speed bumps or even walls and not be able to turn this into a cancer treatment, and even if everything works fine, it could take a few years before a drug is made. But it's very promising and goes to show that we still have much to learn from nature and that when we destroy it, we could be losing things like tick spit. And if you go to the show notes and the link to this article in episode 82, you can get a really close-up look at the tick. Nick Chambers, writing for the Gas2.org website, has this article about algae-based non-metallic batteries and how they could revolutionise the energy storage industry. A group of researchers at Uppsala University in Sweden have discovered that a particular type of algae, with a bad reputation for causing damaging algal blooms in oceans throughout the world, produces a substance that can be used to make inexpensive, non-toxic, simple-to-build, flexible, thin and durable batteries that after optimization are expected to perform on par with today's most advanced lithium-ion batteries. The key to the discovery lies in the way in which the algae, Cladophora, produces a unique type of cellulose with a very large surface area, approximately 80 square meters of surface area per gram of material. By coating this algal cellulose material with a thin layer of a well-known conductive polymer called polypyrrole or PPY, the team has succeeded in producing a battery that weighs almost nothing and that has set new charge time and capacity records for polymer cellulose-based or non-metallic batteries, according to Gustav Nystrom, a doctoral student in nanotechnology and one of the main researchers. The battery they created during the course of their experiment was completely unoptimized. Yet even so, they managed to obtain storage capacities of approximately 25 watt-hours per kilogram of battery material by weight or 40 watt-hours per litre of battery material by volume. To get an idea of what that means, lithium-ion batteries, which have been optimised for a long time now, have a range of 100 to 160 watt-hours per kilogram or 250 to 360 watt-hours per litre. 
After optimization, the research team expects the PPY cellulose batteries to have roughly the same energy storage characteristics as lithium ion. Up until now, no one has been able to make an organic-based battery perform anywhere close to what you would expect from the best lithium ion inorganic batteries. What's the big deal with having an organic-based battery, you ask? From ease of manufacture, to the low level of toxicity, to the flexible nature of the material, organic-based batteries have several key advantages over inorganic ones, such as lithium-ion. According to an email from Professor Maria Strom, one of Gustav Nyström's advisors and another author on the paper, the battery would be very easy and cheap to make because it mainly consists of paper and salt water and can theoretically be made in your own kitchen, if you have a strong mixer, without the major energy input needed to create today's batteries. In a separate email, Mr Nyström also added that the manufacture of the battery is based on an easy all-chemical batch-wise fabrication process using inexpensive and abundant materials. Although the battery can be made with ease and is quite non-toxic, it has some impressive characteristics relating to charge times and durability. Again, keeping in mind that their experimental battery was completely unoptimized, it already shows an impressive ability to be quickly charged and discharged at high amperages over and over without losing much of its storage capacity. The research team is not focusing directly on car applications as of yet, choosing instead to direct their energies on taking advantage of the battery's unique properties of flexibility and low toxicity. However, because the batteries are expected to perform on par with lithium-ion and may potentially be much cheaper and less toxic, there is no reason that they couldn't outright replace lithium-ion as the battery of choice for all applications including electric and extended range vehicles. And the musical track you heard there was Nevesis by Alexei Nov, and you might recognise it as the theme music for Origins, and I thought for a change I might just play the whole piece so that you can hear what it's like from start to finish, not just the edited bit I use for the title. And of course the music comes from the www.musicalley.com website, which used to be the Podsafe Music Network. And our bandwidth for the podcast is supplied by TalkShoe at www.talkshoe.com. From the news.bbc.co.uk website by Jayotsna Singh Dinosaur eggs are found in India Geologists in southern India say they have found hundreds of dinosaur egg clusters which could be about 65 million years old. It was a chance find discovered when a team of scientists were locating a place to excavate an ancient riverbed in the state of Tamil Nadu. As they dug deeper 
they saw layers of what looked like fossilised eggs. The photos and samples were then sent to various universities who confirmed that they were dinosaur eggs. Each egg is the size of a football, about 13 to 23 centimetres in diameter, lying buried in sandy nests. The leader of the team, M.U. Ramkumar, told the BBC the finding is significant and could help to unravel a mystery about the extinction of the dinosaurs. The important finding is that these eggs have been found in different layers. That means the dinosaurs came to the place over and over, year after year, he said. The second important thing is that we have got volcanic ash deposits on the eggs, which suggests that volcanic activity could have caused their extinction. The other thing that we have found is that all these eggs are unhatched and infertile. So what made the eggs infertile? We need to carry out further studies to learn more from the findings. Scientists believe the eggs belong to the docile leaf-eating sauropod branch of dinosaurs. Their remains have been dug up on every continent, including Antarctica. Paleontologists use the term to describe large, four-legged plant-eating dinosaurs with bulky bodies, long necks and tails and tiny heads with relatively small brains. Dr Ramkumar and his team have called on the central and state governments to protect what they are calling a Jurassic treasure trove. The presence of dinosaur eggs was first recorded in the same district by a British geologist in the 1860s. In the 1990s, a dinosaur egg was found in a government-owned factory in the state. Monty Python's Flying Circus. For those of you who were alive in the 1960s and 1970s and were able to watch television, you may remember the show called Monty Python's Flying Circus. Well, today, the 5th of October, marks the 40th anniversary of Monty Python's sparkling debut on television when the very first episode of Monty Python's Flying Circus was aired on the BBC on the 5th of October, 1969. The irresistible Oxbridge partnership of John Cleese, Eric Idle, Graham Chapman, Michael Palin and Terry Jones, mixed with the dazzlingly surreal artworks of American Terry Gillum, celebrates four decades and 45 episodes of risque silliness. The comedy of Python was streaks ahead of its time, famous for its innovation and radical splendour. Python sketches broke the mould of building to a specific punchline, delivering some of the funniest and most enduring sketches of our lifetime. 
In honour of 40 phenomenal years of comedy, we take a look at the 20 greatest Python sketches ever. And if you go to the show notes at www.origins.info and click on the link to this article and go to the website gnews.com, you can look at some YouTube videos of those 20 famous sketches. Quite funny, quite worth a look. If you remember Monty Python, good memories. If you don't remember Monty Python, well, something from the past that may give you a blast. Take today's podcast, put it in a brown paper bag, roll it up and throw it away. To take out today's podcast from Panati's Extraordinary Origins of Everyday Things, the brown paper bag, 1883, Philadelphia. There are few things simpler and more functional than the paper bag. Picasso painted on them. The artist Saul Steinberg has used them to create elaborate masks, and Americans consume them at the rate of 40 billion a year. As simple and indispensable as the paper bag, the invention as we know it today, with its convenient flat bottom and pleated sides, is surprisingly only 100 years old. Charles Stilwell, the inventor of the brown paper grocery bag, was born on October 6, 1845 in Fremont, Ohio. He enlisted in the Union Army at the age of 17 and served in the Civil War. It was shortly after his discharge that Stilwell began to tinker with inventions, and one of his earliest successes in the summer of 1883 was the first machine to produce paper bags. Bags existed before Stilwell's time, but they were pasted together by hand. Their V-shaped bottoms prevented them from standing on their own, and they were not easily collapsible or conveniently stackable. Stilwell's design was a marvel of simple engineering. He named the flat bottom pleated side bag SOS for self-opening sack. The bag could open instantly to its full shape with a snap of the wrist, and its pleats or gussets, which allowed the bag to open quickly, also permitted it to collapse and stack neatly. But the feature that endeared it to the grocers and market baggers was its ability to stand upright, fully opened, by itself. The biggest boom to the Stilwell bag came with the birth of the American supermarket in the early 1930s. Never had a single store offered a wider selection of foods and household products, all to be carted away in humble brown sacks. As supermarkets multiplied in response to the country's expanding population, Demand for Stilwell's flat bottom bags grew proportionately. 
versatility, strength and low costs made them a nationwide, then worldwide, institution. Today, America's 28,680 supermarkets alone chase 25 million bags a year. Charles Stilwell died on November 25, 1919 in Wayne, Pennsylvania, but not before his fertile mind had invented a machine for printing on oilcloth, a movable map for charting stars, and at least a dozen other brainstorms. The masterpiece of his career, though, is patent number 279,505, the machine that made the bag at once indispensable and disposable. Well, that concludes episode 82 of Origins. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. I know it's been a couple of weeks since I did one, but I've been on holidays. And remember, if you'd like to provide feedback for the show, please do it through iTunes or Podcast Alley or via email. And the email address is origins at origins.info. And I'd like to thank the four friends of the podcast, Steve from Wichita, Marcel from Ontario, Christopher from Illinois, and Glenn from Iowa. Thank you for contributing to the podcast. It's really helping to keep it going. Bye for now.
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.